Open with me, if you will, uh, to Judges chapter 13. <clears throat> uh, tonight we've made it to the last of the Judges. Um, we're going to talk about Samson. Um, I'm sure a story that's familiar to most all of us. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember as a child being really excited about the story of Samson. It was, you know, probably one of the most exciting stories in the Old Testament that you'd hear uh, you know, growing up. And then as an adult, when I come to Samson, I just say it with a sigh. It's like, oh goodness, Samson, here we go. And <clears throat> reading through the story as an adult, it, it has a much different uh, appearance to me. Um, it's quite tragic, actually, the whole story um, from the beginning to end. Um, of just how things go, and you know, this is this is the course of the book of Judges, and this is, you know, what I've been saying all along that we we started off with um, with seemingly good folks, uh, Othniel and Ehud and and Shamgar and all of them, and then as the as the narrative progresses, um, we see more and more depravity, um, and you know, like last week when we talked about Jephthah, he you know did some pretty good stuff. He, he, he had some degree of faith in God, but then um, just by the end went totally awry. With Samson, we see him get a pretty decent start with his parents, but as far as Samson's life himself, I find it really hard to find any evidence of obedience at any point in his life. Um, and uh, thus his life ends tragically. Uh, but as we'll see, um, in spite of all of that, God was still able to use Samson to, uh, to complete his will that he had for Samson's life um, in spite of all of Samson's shortcomings. So we'll start off reading in, in uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. <clears throat> now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for forty years. Now there was a certain man of Zorah in the family of Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren, and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive uh, and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb." And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So the story begins just like all of the other narratives of Judges, where the children of Israel had been enjoying peace, had been uh, in a time of, of faithfulness to God and, and, and abstaining from idolatry. And yet, once again, we find that the, the children of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning that they worshipped idols. And so the Lord gave them over to the hands of the Philistines. Now what is different about this time of the cycle? Have y'all picked up on it? No. What, what's different? There's no cry to God for help. There's no repentance. There's nothing. We don't hear any kind of response from the Israelites. Um, with the other times that the Israelites were taken over by these foreign nations, there was um, significant uh, oppression. So we think about the Midianites uh, in the time of Gideon. They would come in and they would steal the crops every year, so they were starving. 
Um, we think about you know the Moabites coming in and taking them over with Ehud, and they were under this oppression. Well, the oppression of the Philistines was quite different. The Philistines came in and moved among them and lived among them, and even though they ruled over them, it was a, a soft tyranny, if you will, that the Israelites just kind of accepted the Philistines being there. Um, and so this is a much more insidious type of uh, oppression that the Philistines are, are, are having with the Israelites. The Israelites are to the point now where they've just kind of accepted it. And they're like, okay, well, this is the way of life for us. Um, and we'll see that as we go through the story. So, of course, there was no cry out to God because they did not perceive that they were suffering. They didn't perceive, per se, that the oppression was so bad. Um, so there is no cry for help. There is no repentance. And yet, in spite of all of that, God still chose to raise up a judge to deliver them because God knew of their oppression. God understood what was going on here and understood their need for a Savior even if they didn't realize it on their own. So uh, <clears throat> this woman is uh, minding her own business. She's out in the field working and she hasn't had any children. And uh, you know this is kind of a common theme that we see in the Old Testament. So when, you, when you're reading through the Old Testament and you see these kind of repeated themes, that's supposed to spark something for you. It's supposed to be a red flag to make you think about what's going on. And so in this particular culture, not having children was very, very shameful for women. It was, not, it was very looked down upon uh, for them to not be able to have children. And not for all the reasons that we would think, because we're kind of detached from this culture, but you have to think this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis chapter 3, when, when uh, Adam and Eve sinned against God and uh, God cursed them and sent them out of the garden, he, he cursed Adam, he cursed Eve, he cursed the serpent, and then he gave them a promise. What was the promise? That there would be a son that would be born, that would, that would uh, crush the head of the snake, that would destroy sin, that would, that would undo all that had been done. And so from that very moment... Every woman, all the way through the Old Testament, having a child, especially having a son, was their way of partaking in bringing about this redemption. It, every single woman, when they, would have a, when they would be pregnant and it would be a son, they would think, hey, maybe, maybe my son's the one. So I'm sure Eve thought that Cain might be the one or that Abel might be the one. And we saw how that story turned out. And then at the end of chapter 4, we see that, that Seth is born. And I'm sure Eve probably thought, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe Seth will be the one to break this curse. And we know that it wasn't Seth, but instead it was, was Seth's ancestor, Christ, that broke the curse. Well, so all throughout Scripture, you'll see these stories of women being barren. So you think about Abraham and Sarah, that, Abraham, that they couldn't have children, and so they couldn't partake in this promise. And yet God supernaturally worked in that situation so that they had Isaac, and the promise was continued and so forth and so on. So anytime that we see some uh, special attention to a birth narrative, that's supposed to clue you in that the author is giving you a wink or a nod towards, hey, this is a story of redemption. This, this, is, this is how God is going to work. And, and so Samson's birth is, is recorded in great detail and, and quite miraculous, the, the, the things that go on around it. So we have someone who's barren. We have an angel that comes to her and says, hey, uh, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be special. He's going to be set apart. He's going to be um, marked by this Nazarite vow. And so what that would be, this is described in Numbers, 
Um, it'd be three things. You, you would avoid alcohol. You would avoid uh, touching any kind of dead body or unclean thing. And you wouldn't shave your head. This would be a thing uh, that you would, a vow that you would make for a time period uh, in order to, to uh, seek God's help in your time of need, earnestly. And you would say, okay, I'm going to do this vow for six weeks or until something happens or whatever. M much like we would think about fasting, you know, today. You say, okay, well, I'm going to fast and pray. It's that kind of deal. Well, Samson was going to be different. He was going to be taking this vow um, from the moment of conception. So even, you notice the angel tells her not to drink or touch anything dead while she's pregnant with him because that in turn would, would break the vow for Samson. So anyways, they go back and forth and they, uh, they have another conversation uh, with the angel and, and then um, her and her husband both. And um, so they... Uh, uh, Verse, script to verse 24, uh, Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahadan and between Zorah and Eshtael. All right, so first let's talk about his name. Samson uh, is a, a, a kind of a compound Hebrew word which means like the sun. Um, which was, oh, that's a good name. You're naming him like he's a ray of sunshine. He's great. But um, there's also another connotation to this, that there was a sun god that they worshipped. And so it's possible that although Samson's parents seemed to be pretty uh, faithful folks, um, they named him uh, in honor of an idol that they worshipped. So who knows which way that's supposed to go, but it's, it's kind of interesting uh, that that's what his name means, and it comes up later. Um, also know that uh, notice in verse 25 it says that the Lord began to stir him in Manaha Dan and and that word Manaha means the camp. So um, if you go all the way back to chapter one when um, uh, all the different tribes were were going to battle against the Canaanites in their allotted area of land and we got all the way down to the end of the tribe of Dan, they were not able to push out the inhabitants of their land. So instead of Samson living in the land that was in, supposed to be inherited to him, he's living in a camp. He's camping out, waiting for their land to be cleared out. So just kind of an interesting tidbit. But notice that, that from the very young age that, that God's Spirit began working in Samson in order to make him into who he needed to be. Um, verse 14, so now we're moved, or chapter 14. So now we move way for, farther into the future. Samson's grown up. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you can take a wife, uh, that you go and you take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Uh, but Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Um, the ESV translates this better. Uh, Rob, you've got ESV. What does it say that Samson says? Uh, it'd be uh, verse, into verse 3. Get her for me, for she is right. Now that is a very, very key phrase. If you've read through the rest of the book of Judges, um, after this story comes two two uh, stories that is it's almost kind of like an epilogue to the book of Judges. 
And uh, repeatedly in those stories, the phrase is, there was no king in the nation of Israel, or everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in the nation of Israel. And if you'll notice at the beginning of each judge narrative, it says that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they did what was wrong in, in God's eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. And this hasn't been mentioned yet in this story, but we see that Samson looks at this woman and says, what? She's right in my eyes. This is what's right in my eyes. So we already kind of get an idea of what kind of person Samson is going to be. He's completely controlled by his own desires. If he sees it and wants it, he gets it and he takes it. And that's how he lives his life. Um, and so this is no different with this. Even his parents recognize this is a really bad idea for you, to be, for you to be trying to marry one of the Philistines because they know what the angel told them. The angel told them that he was going to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And that's a very important distinction that the, that the angel said, you're going to begin to deliver them from the, from the Philistines because we know that Samson doesn't complete the task. He doesn't completely deliver them from the Philistines. Why? Because we flip two books ahead and we see that David's still fighting the same Philistines. And eventually David's able to, to completely clear them out of the land of Israel. But, but Samson was important because God used him to drive a wedge between the people of Israel and the Philistines to, to help them to make a distinction between this culture so that the Israelites would realize, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're getting way too close with these people. Um, and and that, is, that is how God used, used Samson. And instead, we see Samson, well, I'm just going to go marry one. So he's, he's buying into everything else that the culture around him is doing in spite of what his mission is, in spite of what he knows. And, you know, the, the, the text doesn't tell us this, but you have to think, growing up, Samson was told over and over and over again about the story of his birth. You have to think that Samson was told about how his mom was working in the field and, and an angel came to her and, and told her all of these things and told her that he was going to be the one to destroy the Philistines. And you have to think, all throughout his childhood, you know, his family would say, okay, you know, deal with the Philistines. This is what they're doing now. But one day you're going you're gonna to take care of this for us. You're going to save us from this. So you have to know, Samson knows this is a terrible idea. But Samson is able to push all that aside. Why? Because his God is his own appetite. He looks at something and says, I want that, I'm going to take that. And doesn't care anything else about what's supposed to go on. Um, <clears throat> verse 4, verse, However, his father and his mother did not know of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at this time the Philistines were ruling over Israel. So they didn't understand what God was doing, and so they, they protest against this, but um, God in His sovereignty allowed this to happen. Now, we can say for sure that this was not God's will that He go and marry a Philistine. I mean, it's clear in His Word that they were not supposed to do that. They were not supposed to intermarry with these other cultures and other religions. Um, and, but we see that God is sovereign and is able to carry out His will in spite of Samson's shortcomings. So God's will for Samson is plain and simple. I'm going to begin the separation between Israel and the Philistines and, and begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And God was going to accomplish that will regardless of Samson's actions. Now this doesn't, this doesn't excuse Samson's actions. Samson is still responsible for how he acts in this. But um, God is not... Uh, God is not um, 
subject to whether people do what He says that they should do or not, whether they follow His will or not, God's will is going to take place regardless of, of Samson and his, his disobedience. So verse 5, Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring towards him. And I want to point out something about, about Hebrew storytelling. Okay, So, you know, kids during the times of Samson didn't have this book written down for them or they didn't have newspapers or whatever. Everything was... Was all of these stories were like an oral history. They were they would sit around the fire at night after supper and they would tell the story of Samson. They would tell the story of Gideon. And part of Hebrew storytelling is they're not going to include many details. Um, they don't mention anything about what Samson looks like. All, all we know is that he's got long hair. Um, you know they don't even mention Samson's mother name. So there's not going to be details. But when you do see a detail, it's meant to convey something. So it's no coincidence. It's it's no. It's not a. It's not a. Um, uh, a trivial fact that he is in a vineyard. He's supposed to avoid alcoholic beverages. Why in the world is he in a vineyard? Why in the world did he go to the bar? You know. So it that that is the author's way of hinting and telling us. Samson is not taking this vow seriously. He's, he's not where he's supposed to be. Whether he drank or not at that time, we don't know, but he's where he's not supposed to be. So just kind of keep that in mind as you, as you read through Old Testament narratives that some, some details that we may kind of gloss over as just being trivial or whatever, the author is putting in there intentionally so that we can kind of get the picture. Um, the author expects the Hebrew listener to read between the lines, if you will. So anyways... Um, He's going to go get this, get this uh, girl at Timna, And uh, he and his mother and father are going down. Apparently they got separated at some point. Or for whatever reason, he's going on this path by this vineyard. And a young lion came, toward, came rushing towards him. Verse 6, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore the lion as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So... He is able to, with his bare hands, kill a lion. So this is the point we we're talking about on, on the drive over here. A lot of times we imagine Samson as being this big, gigantic, hulking, uh, Avenger-looking kind of dude. But it doesn't matter how strong you are. I, I would wager the strongest man that's ever lived could not tear a lion in half. Or any of the stuff that Samson does. This is small potatoes compared to what's coming next. So... I don't know that Samson was necessarily big or huge or hulking. Um, every time uh, Samson, uh, someone asks, or when we get later in the story, when the Philistines are, are trying to get him with Delilah and all that, they're all like, where does your strength come from? So they were all surprised by it. And they thought there had to be something magical about it. So my guess is Samson was probably just an average looking dude. Um, the scripture doesn't tell us one way or the other, but kind of the context clues, you know, you can kind of piece that together and it makes sense. But anyways, he was able to, with his bare hands, tear this lion in half. Um, and then he just goes about the rest of his day. Um, verse 7, so he went down and talked to the woman. He's going to go, go uh, arrange all this for, uh, to, to marry this girl. Um, and she looked good to Samson or looked right in his eyes. Uh, when he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. And this is kind of interesting, this phrase. Joey, this is one of our Wednesday night words for sin. He turned aside. So um, a lot of times in the Old Testament, uh, 
like we talked about on Wednesday night, there's different words to describe sin. And this is one of them where you're on the path and you turn aside and get off of the path you're supposed to be on and go towards sin. I think it's intentional that the author used this word to describe what he's doing because he is both physically turning aside, he's physically walking off the path he's supposed to be on, and he is spiritually turning aside from what he's supposed to be doing. And he goes and looks at the carcass. He looks in the carcass, he sees a beehive in the carcass, and he sees that he wants the honey that's in the beehive, he desires it, he sees that it's good in his eyes, if you will, and goes and scrapes out the honey. So if there was any question about whether he broke the Nazarite vow by killing the lion with his bare hands and tearing it in half by touching a dead thing, he's definitely done it now in that he's gone and scraped honey out from a lion and has eaten the honey. And then he also goes back home and gives it to his parents and has them eat it too, which is just incredible. Um, So then we see verse 10. uh, Then after all of this deal, his father went down to the woman and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. Note, the young men of the Philistines customarily did this. This was not an Israelite custom. And he's going to a Philistine town to go do this Philistine custom with a Philistine family of the Philistine woman that he's marrying. Um, And when they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now these would have been uh, dudes that were hired to celebrate, because obviously Samson probably didn't have any Philistine friends, (laughs) but they hired 30 Philistine men to come celebrate. Or perhaps some some commentators think they might have hired these 30 Philistine men to protect the wedding party, to keep them from being robbed, or to keep Samson from doing something crazy. You know, we we don't know. But anyways, um, those guys come up later. Um, uh, But anyway, so uh, Samson goes and and, uh, they're they're at the party. So this party would be like a seven-day festival, um, a seven-day drinking party. And so now we see Samson, in the matter of just a few verses, has breaking broken two out of the three vows that he was supposed to do. He's throwing this big party, obviously implied he's drinking um, at this party. Um, So verse 12, Samson said to them, Let me propound you uh, with a riddle. If you will indeed tell it to me within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you will give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, uh, Propound us your riddle, that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell him the riddle, and three days had passed. Um, so this is, seems weird to us that he would wager um, for articles of clothing, but this is not just a t-shirt or something like that. This is their absolute Sunday best clothes. Okay, this would be... And most people would only have uh, the means to have one set of clothes that was set apart just for special occasions. And then you would keep that probably for your entire adult life. So this is a very, very big expense. And likewise, for Samson to be able to procure 30 of these clothes to pay people back um, would be a, a huge expense. Or as we'll see later, he would have to go get it from 30 different people. Um, so anyways, uh, he puts this riddle out for them, and, and by the fourth day, they, they can't figure it out. And so they went to Samson's wife, and they said, Entice your husband, this is verse 15, so that he will tell us the riddle, or will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? 
Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother, so should I tell it to you? However, uh, when she wept before him seven days while the feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him so hard, then uh, she then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty men, and took their spoil, and gave the, char- the changes of clothes to those uh, who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. Um, so once again, we see Samson, he's totally out of control. Uh, he cannot control his emotions. He comes up with this dumb riddle game and... And then he can't control himself when his wife is crying and, and, and wants him to tell the riddle. And then when all this is, comes to a head, he can't control himself and he goes and murders 30 people. And then at the end of that, he's so angry. Rather than going home to his wife, he was trying to appease his wife because it was coming to the end of the marriage feast and they were going to consummate the marriage and they were going to actually make this legitimate and, and move forward. But he's so angry and he's so blind with rage that he just like runs out of town and goes back to mom and dad's house. Um, and because of all of that, um, we've got this woman who was betrothed to be married, and now we don't have anyone to be her husband. And so they made an arrangement for her to go home with the best man and be married to him. Um, one thing that's interesting, when we see that the Spirit of the Lord uh, comes upon him and gives him power, he's doing these fantastic, uh, 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 miraculous things, and yet, nowhere in here is anything good happening. Now, granted, God is God is 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 working His plan. He he is carrying out His will of of causing this division between the Israelites and the Philistines. And yet, in doing so, Samson is sinning, and he's been empowered to do these things by the Spirit of God. One of the commentators I read had a very interesting take on this: that um, there is gifts that are given to people via the power of the Spirit of God. And then there's, so there's a difference between spiritual gifting and spiritual fruit. And Paul brings us up in 1 Corinthians 13 when he talks about, you know, you could have all these gifts of the Spirit. You could get up and, and preach really good. You could get up, and, you could get up and, uh, and speak in tongues. You can get up and do all of this stuff. But if you don't have love, then it's completely worthless. If you don't have the fruits of the Spirit married to the gifting of the Spirit, it's completely useless. And so Samson is utilizing this, this power that's given to him by the Spirit of God, and he's doing so for selfish means um, and, and to, to carry out his own will rather than God's. But God in His sovereignty, in spite of all of this, is still able to accomplish His will um, through all of these things that Samson does. Uh, verse Chapter 15, uh, But after a while, uh, in the time of the wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat, and said, or, or went to visit his wife and said, I will go into my wife, into her room. But her father did not let him go in. And her, her father said, I had really thought that you had hated her so intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is, it not, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. And then Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I, when I do, to, do them harm. 
Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and uh, turned the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between the two tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the grain fields of the Philistines, thus burning up the shocks and the standing grain along with the vineyards and the groves. And the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. Then he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock in Etam. So it's kind of interesting. The, the, the Philistines had threatened to burn uh, the woman and her husband, or the woman and her father and her whole household if she didn't tell them the riddle. And then as a result of everything that transpired with this story, the Philistines ended up burning them down anyways, even though she told them the riddle. Um, and we see this, this back and forth between Samson and the Philistines and um, where each one wants to retaliate and, and try to one-up the other. Um, and so it ends with, with uh, Samson killing a whole bunch of them. We don't know how many. And then he decides to just go find a cave to go live in somewhere. Um, verse 9, Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is that you have done to us? So we see that the children of Israel have no idea of their, their oppression still. They still do not understand what God is trying to accomplish in Samson. They don't understand that Samson is a judge, that, he's, that, he's, that God is using him to deliver them because they don't understand they're under oppression. Um, they have become so complacent with the idolatry um, that has crept into their nation that uh, they're fine with the way things are and don't even recognize their need for a Savior. Um, and so they're willing to, to turn Samson in and give him over to the Philistines just to keep the peace. Um, so anyways, uh, uh, verse 12, they said to him, We've come to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands, um, yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him up with two new ropes, and brought him up from the rock. Then he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes were on his arms, so that the ropes that were on his arms were like flax that had been burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he reached out and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramoth-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by your hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst in the fall, in, in, and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that the water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he was revived. Therefore he named it... Uh, that, that place, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. This is the first time we see Samson pray to God at all. And his very first prayer is this 
you know, really terrible demand on God of, I'm thirsty, you're going to just let me die now? And no doubt you have to hear this and think back to the Israelites in the wilderness of saying, okay, you brought me out here in the wilderness, now you're just going to let me starve to death, you're going to let me, you're going to let me be thirsty? And, uh, and God is so gracious and so patient with Samson that he opens up rock, opens up a rock and lets water pour out of it just like it did in the wilderness. Um, and despite all of Samson's, uh, all of Samson's problems, um, God is gracious because God is still not done working through Samson. Um, and so this is kind of the midpoint of the story. Um, and we get this, this kind of summary statement at the end. So he judged Israel for 20 years in the times of the Philistines. It's kind of difficult to figure out the chronology of all of this, how, how all this took place. Obviously, all these first episodes kind of happened back to back to back. And then we kind of get the idea that he was left alone for a while, that maybe the Philistines figured out, uh, hey, if we just leave this guy alone, he's going to leave us alone. And so nothing happens for a while. Uh, but then the Philistines find themselves in a very... Uh, a very uh, they find a really, really good opportunity to take care of this Samson guy. So verse six, or chapter 16, Now Samson went to Gaza, and that's the capital city of, Philistine, of, of the Philistine area. So um, before, you know, he was kind of hanging out in the outskirts. This area in Timnah was an area in Israel, but was kind of overrun with Philistines. Now Samson has become so emboldened um, that he's just going to walk right into the capital city. And this is a big city with walls and, and a gate, and all of that around it, and Samson's like, oh, whatever, nobody can touch me. I'm, I'm completely invincible. Um, and uh, so he goes to Samson, and he finds a harlot, and he, he went with her. And uh, when it was told to the uh, Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, let us wait until the morning light uh, when we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took a hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts, pulled them up out of the ground along with their bars, and then he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them up to the top of the mountains, which is opposite Hebron. So instead of just busting out of there, Samson's got to make a scene. He's got to show them exactly how powerful and strong he is. And so he just picks up the city gate and carries it 40 miles up a mountain and puts it down and leaves it right there as a symbol to everyone. So um, Samson's arrogance seems to know no bounds. Um, and he's almost to the point, and we'll see as the rest of chapter 16 plays out, that he's testing to see just how far he can push these people, just how, just how invincible God has made him um, in spite of everything else that he's done. So... Verse 4, After this it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And this is kind of interesting. Uh, Delilah's name is very, very, very similar to the Hebrew word for not. So now we have the, the uh, Samson, who is like sunshine, is now joining himself to someone who is like the not. And he's, he's made this total progression from who he was supposed to be to now who he's turned into. Um, so anyways, uh, uh, verse 5, The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies, and how we may overpower him, that, he may bind, that we may bind him and afflict him. Then we will uh, each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me 
uh, where your great strength is and how you may be bound up to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried. She bound him there. Uh, Now she had men lying in wait in the inner room. And she said to them, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toe snaps when when it touches fire. So his strength was not discovered. So Samson is now to the point where he's, Okay, this woman that I love... She is trying to trick me, obviously. I mean, he had to figure this out from the very first night that she was trying to trick him. And yet, he keeps giving in to this. And he keeps inching closer and closer and closer to telling her that it's his hair. That if he cuts his hair, his strength will be gone. Um, and uh, so anyways, it goes on and, and he says, Okay, well, you know, tie me up with brand new ropes and that'll work. And the same thing plays out. And then he says, Okay, well, if you braid my hair and, and put this special pin or something in it, then that's going to be what causes my strength to fail. And so he's getting closer and closer to the secret. And then finally, um, uh, verse 13, Then Delilah said to Samson, Up until now you've deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, uh, Wait, 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 let's skip on down. Uh, Verse 15, Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You've deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about that when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. I just love that phrase. That's incredible that that's in there. So Samson has had all he can take. And this is supposed to mirror the story of the wedding feast, that, that Samson's weakness isn't that his hair's cut, his weakness is that if a woman keeps bothering him and bothering him, that he'll eventually do whatever she says, and, and even to his own destruction. Um, so uh, verse 17, So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, As a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came upon her, brought the money in their hands. She made him him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she had begun to afflict him, and his strength left him. Then she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. So the question is, why did God remove his spirit from him at this point? Is it really that God saw... Okay, that's it. He broke the final component of the Nazarite vow, now I'm going to take my strength away. Did it really have anything to do with Samson's hair? I don't think so. I think it has to do with the fact that Samson thought it was his hair. Samson thought that he could treat God in such a way that he could manipulate him by keeping this vow. Hey, as long as I don't, as long as I don't cut my hair, I can do whatever I want. And Samson's entire life has lived that way that Samson feels that he can do whatever he wants. 
he felt like I was fine to do the thing with the lion because um, I'm still keeping the other two vows. Okay, well, I'm fine to have this big drinking party and marry this Philistine because I'm still keeping the one vow. So I think it's, I think it's important to see that Samson thinks that his hair is somehow magical and that he's got some sort of hold on God, that he can, that he can manipulate God into, into blessing him with this miraculous strength just because he's holding on to his end of the bargain. But that has nothing to do with it. Um, they cut his hair, and um, at this point, Samson is being judged. He's being given over to the thing that uh, he has longed after. And this is exactly like we talk about in Romans 1. God gave him over. And, God, and, and Samson was futile in his thinking for thinking that he could just not cut his hair and do whatever he wanted, and God would continue to bless him the way that he was. Um, and I think it's very interesting, the punishment that the Philistines dole out is they seized him and what? Gouged out his eyes. And this has been Samson's problem from the beginning. From the very first thing that we see Samson do, he sees this woman and longs after her. He sees this honey in this, in this carcass. He sees this opportunity to, to shake down a bunch of the Philistines for um, those really nice clothes. And he sees all of these opportunities, and he just goes and takes what he wants. And this is not unlike where Jesus um, tells his disciples, hey, if your eyes call on you to sin, it's better that you gouge it out and not sin. Well, Samson didn't make that choice. That choice was made for him. Um, that when God decides enough is enough, I'm doling out uh, my judgment and my wrath on Samson for what he's done. This is what he does. Um, but it's also important to note that this is gracious of God because it seems like Samson's eyes are his big downfall. His eyes and his reliance on his strength. So Samson is brought incredibly low by having these two things taken away from him. Um, and we see the result of that and how Samson's attitude has changed now. So, uh, anyways, however, verse 22, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Now the question is, why did the Philistines think that it was okay for his hair to grow again? Well, they thought, just like Samson had thought, that now the vow was broken. So it doesn't matter if his hair grows or not, he's not going to get strong again. But they also did not realize how the God of the Israelites worked. That He does not work like Dagon or Molech or any of those other gods that you can manipulate by vows and rituals and sacrifices and all of that. God functions and God acts based on His will, and His will is about bringing about salvation to His people. Um, and He'll do so regardless of how those people act. And this is the case. The Israelites did not cry out for redemption they did not repent. Samson was, by and large, the worst judge of any of these people. He has no redeeming qualities throughout his entire narrative, uh, and yet God still acts to bring about redemption of his people because God is operating on the basis of his own character, not upon the character of Samson or any of these people. So, um, verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, and they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. It so happened that when they were in high spirits, they said, Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he, he entertained them. 
and they made him stand between two pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, uh, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there. And it was about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called out to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may once be avenged of the Philistines and for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, uh, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with these Philistines. And he bent with all his might, so that the house fell on the lords and all of the people who were in it. So the dead whom, uh, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Then the brothers, uh, then his brothers and all of his father's household came down, took him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtahol, in the tomb of Manoah his father. Thus he judged Israel for twenty years. So at the very last moment, we see Samson have one redeeming act where he realizes where his strength came from, that it came from God, and that it didn't have anything to do with himself. It didn't have anything to do with his ability to follow this, follow this, uh, this vow that um, he was supposed to take. But instead, his strength, his salvation came from God. And so at the very last moment, uh, we see Samson praying to God, calling out to God to, to just give him one more chance. And I love this because you get to, after you've read the book of Judges and you see Samson and everything with his life, you get to Hebrews chapter 11 and he's mentioned there as, a, as, as a, an example of faith. And you're like, what in the world am I supposed to emulate about Samson's life? And I think it's this one very moment where, where Samson, right at the end, realizes who God is, that God is the one who gave him his strength, that it is by God's grace alone that he, that he had this gift to begin with. And um, he asked God to give him that strength one more time. And so, you know, I can't help but think about the thief on the cross who had lived an entire life of sin and depravity and then at the very last moment realizes who God is and what God is doing uh, to save his people. And he cries out for mercy. And so Samson is no different. Right at the very end, he cries out for mercy. Now, this is not a really great example for the sinner's prayer because he's asking for mercy and then goes on to say, I want revenge and I, I want to get them back for my, my eyes. So Samson is by no means perfect. He, he, was not, he was not completely sanctified during his time in prison, but he at least was humbled to the point to recognize that, that God was the one who would save him. Um, and I love that because if it was up to us to pray a perfect prayer, would we be able to do it? Um, I mean, it's really easy to criticize Samson and be like, really, dude, you're here at the end of your life and all you can think about is getting revenge. It's so imperfect. It's so broken. It's so messy. And yet, he does have one little kernel of faith in there. And apparently, according to the author of Hebrews, that was enough. That's all it took. So, you know, you come to the end of the, of the, of the story of Samson and say, okay, well, man, if Samson is in heaven, then maybe, maybe, maybe my messed up, broken, imperfect faith that I have in Christ is enough. And the point is, as we all know, it is not about how good Samson was because Samson was by all measures awful. But it's about how good the Savior is that he put his faith in. Let's pray.